Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And I just want to tell everybody, don't be shy about sending those questions in. I've got a very long queue of questions, but I'm trying to balance older and newer ones. And anyway, I'm doing the best I can here. Uh, <laughs> on that note, I've actually been sent a question, um, which is for you guys. So I'm going to throw this one out there first, and then we'll talk about other stuff. But here's the question for you guys. It comes from Matsky. Chris, here is a question that will be real short and easy for you to answer because I don't want you to answer it at all. I would like your listeners to answer it in the comment section. It's a question for them, not you. Several times I thought of a question to send to Chris, but I put it off too long. Then saw on the next week's show someone else had asked the exact same question. I don't mean a similar question, but the exact same question in eerily exact same words, as if someone had read my mind. Has this happened to anyone else? Okay, so that's for you guys. Now, uh, let's see. Put up a great podcast this week. Actually, two. You guys got a bonus podcast from me this week. Now, I know a lot of you don't care because it's about politics. Um, but it's, you know, one of those impossible conversation podcasts I put up on Wednesday or Thursday, and it was, uh, I think it was Wednesday night, and it had to do with uh, me and a friend, a, a conservative, or he, he identifies now, I really shouldn't call him conservative anymore, He's, um, he identifies as classically liberal now, but he was conservative, he was very right wing, and he and I have had a couple podcasts of impossible conversations, and they're always kind of fun, and, and I, you know, anyway, if you're interested in that, that is up there for you guys to check out. Uh, I know contentious times, everybody's got an opinion, and usually most of them suck, and rah, 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 so whatever. Anyway, I put that one up in the middle of the week. But more importantly, and much more, I think, to the general interest of my audience, uh, yesterday I posted an interview with Dr. Michelle Haslam, who is a survivor of the New Kadampa tradition, or NKT, and we do some compare and contrast with Scientology. We talk about her experience. And one of the most interesting things about her is she is a licensed uh, psychologist. She is Dr. Michelle Haslam uh, in the UK, and yet she got sucked into a destructive cult and uh, got herself out of it. We talk about all the mechanisms, all the various things that went on. So you guys might want to check that podcast out just for general information. And it's a it was a Buddhist-type cult, by the way, so we get into some of that as well. All right. Now, let's go ahead and get on with your questions, because you guys sent me some good ones. Kevin Zay. How do Scientologists interpret global events, such as the current COVID-19 epidemic we are going through? I imagine religious cults, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, are interpreting this as the start of the Great Tribulation, or whatever end-time event the particular cult believes in. Yeah, it's interesting. Scientology is not a doomsday cult as such, but it has this sort of dogmatic belief that through the writings of L. Ron Hubbard and, and what he wrote and what he said in his lectures, that there is a limited amount of time in which we have to get this job done. He talks about different factors. The fact that the planet's falling apart, the various governments are constantly in turmoil, and there are wars and, and degraded novels and the de declining moral situation and you know all these things that he would throw out there. In fact, I think in 19... 
69 or 70, there was an issue uh, where he talked about the oil crisis and how the, the world only had about five years. And then it was all going to go to hell, right? It was going to be over by 1975. Well, of course, the world didn't end in 1975 or 74, or 76, or whatever year it was he was referring to when he said five years. Um, but, uh, of course, the, you know, the, the, the cognitive dissonance, and this kind of, and doom, studying doomsday cults uh, is where the, the beginnings of the cognitive dissonance theory came from or was utilized. Um, Anyway, that when, when the world doesn't end after five years, then the cult gets to say, well, it was only because we were around, see, and we prevented it from happening. That would, that's what would have happened if we hadn't been around, right? And, and just to be like super clear for those of you who haven't heard about this, for example, when you, you know, you might think to yourself, my God, how could somebody have such a delusion? Well, this is the same group of people who thought that the Berlin Wall came down because OT8, the highest level of Scientology, had been released that same year. And so, you know, OT8 comes out, people start auditing on OT8 and relieving the world of whatever, you know, worldly stress it's under. And the, look at what happened. The Berlin Wall came down. I mean, Scientologists were serious about this. They really thought they were the ones who were responsible for that epic event, you know, to have occurred. Um, you know, economics, government, social factors, all of that didn't matter at all. <laughs> that had nothing to do with it. It was just OTA, right? Okay, so anyway, you get this kind of, um, you, so you certainly get these groups very full of themselves and very sure that they're the ones who are influencing, you know, good, when, when something good happens in a societal sense, they were responsible. When something bad happens, getting back to your question, that means that they have to work that much harder and faster. That tends to be a, a kick in the ass for them. Um, so COVID-19 is happening, right? The coronavirus. And this is just fair, from a Scientology point of view. Well, there's a few different levels of this. One of them is on an individual level, are you PTS? Right? Are you connected to a suppressive of some kind? Do you have a suppressive influence in your life? And if you do, then you could potentially be more um, susceptible to getting this virus. And so you better get a PTS handling, right? And there's a little joke in Scientology when somebody almost has an accident but doesn't. There's a near miss or a near hit, or I should say more accurately. Uh, or they almost have something bad happen to them, but they avert disaster. They laughingly will say, aha, PTS check, right? Oh, I wasn't, I'm not PTS because if I were, then this bad thing would have, that almost happened to me would have happened. This is how they think. Okay, so, but it's also a joke too. Um, so on an individual level, you'll have a bunch of Scientologists who will depending on their point of view and their mental state, they will, might, will probably be saying that they're not going to have any issues or problems with the COVID virus because, or the coronavirus because they're not PTS and their ethics are in and they are Scientologists and they are cause, right? So, you know, they're going to they're gonna think happy thoughts and this is very magical thinking is what this is. It's really, you know, Scientologists are not any more or less immune to the uh, COVID-19 simply because of who they are or what their beliefs are, but this is, this is how people act. So in Scientology, they will definitely be thinking that they are probably gonna be, 
that they have an added level of protection or immunity because of, of, of who they are, their beliefs, or their OT powers. Um, but at the same time, they're going to be wanting to make sure everybody's not PTS, right? Um, anyway, so that's kind of a, a, a way they will deal with that. But more from the group perspective, it's going to be more about... Um, getting in gear, getting in motion. Like, this is just another one of the signs of the apocalypse, so to speak, right? It's not, and it's not like Scientology has a belief that there are seven seals that have to be broken and then it's going to be, you know, end times. But they look at every disaster, every huge disaster, at, like 9-11, for example, was a, you know, a big thing. When 9-11 when, when went down, Miscavige actually wrote a three-page issue that he sent down to all Scientologists called um, Wake Up Call. That's what the, the name of the issue was. And it was like, hey, wake up, man. Like, the world's going to hell, and time for us to get busy, get moving, let's go. Uh, join staff, give money, you know, contribute more, get active, do something. And there were even, um, you know, after a couple weeks, life gets back to normal because that's how we are. And there was so much teeth gnashing inside the church because I was in the Sea Org at the time that 9-11 went down. And I remember after a couple of weeks when things had tapered off and everybody was kind of chilling back and getting back to normal, um, ED International, the Executive Director International, um, the French guy, for those of you who remember him, Guillaume Lecev, uh, was, was, was frustratingly expressing, you know, what... The, the stats had gone down, and he was like, what, what, do we have to fly a plane into the Hollywood sign now to wake these people up? Like, what's going on, right? It was all those, Argh! kind of frustration that people wouldn't wake up and stay woke, right? <laughs> um, because, you know, life happens, and people need to have their jobs and their lives, and their kids have to go to school. I mean, normalcy and all of that has to happen. So, uh, so of course, things are going to get back to, uh, you know, some kind of normalcy and uh, and and these and these kinds of events are utilized by Scientology or other groups and especially of course by the media to drum up sales drum up panic raise anxiety and stress levels to to use fear-based marketing or fear-based tactics to get people to give over more money more time more dedication etc and um, and it's obviously, as I just mentioned, you know, this is not just Scientology, all groups who have a vested interest in people being afraid for whatever reason, right? Because they want to sell you something, because they want you to click on their stuff, because they want you to join their group, you know, because they want your time, they, they want your money, they want your energy. You know, these, these groups will act like vampires that way, and they will use fear-mongering to accomplish their purposes. They're not above that. And Scientology is no different. So that's kind of where that's at. And I hope that was interesting to you. Cyprian Ivanov. What is the reasoning for the Sea Org habit of viewing swearing as trustworthy? Is it that they pick the idea of tact as being phony and strive to do the opposite? Is it that holding back from swearing indicates self-control and the lack of controlling one's emotions in the very short term is considered a sign of sincerity? Is it just that Hubbard used swearing and threats for emphasis and people picked up the habit from him? That's an interesting question, Cyprian, and, and actually a little bit of a mix of your, of your guesses there, or suppositions as to what's going on with all the swearing. 
The issue that is probably referred back to and is certainly read more often than anything else in Scientology is, is keeping Scientology working. And I've done video breakdowns of this. Uh, I've, you know, we've talked about this a lot. It's a very important issue in the Church of Scientology. And it's, it's part of the, it's, it's heavy level of indoctrination. And, and it's repeated over and over at the beginning of every course. It's talked about, referred to, KSW. This is something Tom Cruise even talked about in his video, his turtleneck video. Um, in Keeping Scientology Working, L. Ron Hubbard stresses that the social veneer makes this universe seem quite mild, but it's not a mild universe and only the tigers survive. Now, that's not a direct quote, it's a paraphrase of what Hubbard said, but the social veneer that he refers to is manners, etiquette, swearing or not swearing, right, using your words. These kinds of things, these social niceties, right, this sort of lubrication of human relations that we've developed over the years. Uh, Scientologists, that as you progress up the levels of Scientology, as you get more and more indoctrinated in it, and as you um, go from public to staff to Sea Org, where time starts becoming very compressed, the urgency with which you are dealing with how much time you have every day is going up, 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 because you're being hit harder and harder and harder with more and more demands and more and more fear-mongering, more and more anxiety-inducing kinds of things about how the world's falling apart, right? That kind of thing, like we talked about in the last question. Um, because of the urgency, stress levels are higher. Anx anxiety is higher as you're rising up this ladder. Um, now, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the staff, or the, sorry, the public staff Sea Org ladder, right? Going up the bridge doesn't necessarily do this, right? There are very well-mannered, um, cultured, uh, you know, very etiquette-aware OT8s, right, who, who speak well, talk well, very mannered people, but they're not Sea Org, or and, and most of the time they're not staff, right? When you get into staff and you get into the Sea Org, that's where all this, like, you know, all the swearing and stuff comes from. Public, public level Scientologists sometimes don't have any time for that. They're like, hey man, I, you know, shut off the potty mouth. I'm not interested in, in, in being talked to that way. And, and if you're talking to a public person, especially if you're trying to get in their good side and you want their money, then you will comply with their wishes. But if you're in an ethics handling where the staff member or the Sea Org member is the one who has the authority in the room, they don't care what you know what the public person has to say about their swearing, um, and this and the and uh, getting back to the stress and the you know the anxiety levels that come up in on staff and in the Sea Org, that's where the swearing comes out because they the tempers are shorter, time is more limited, patience is strained, and so let's fucking go, man, come on, let's move your ass, let's go, right? Like that's that kind of language just flows from Sea Org members' mouths because they're just talking that way. It's just, it, and, it, and it is a reflection of, of the impatience and, the, and, and frankly, the stress that they're under. So I think that's 
how I would approach answering that question. You also mentioned in, you know, as one of the things, you know, L. Ron Hubbard doing this. Yeah, Hubbard swore like a sailor when he wanted to, and apparently that was quite a bit. And he was, he could be a ruthless taskmaster. So, um, so he didn't, he wasn't afraid of giving somebody the sharp end of his tongue if he thought that they deserved it. And that sort of stuff rolls downhill. Of course it does. And certainly Miscavige learned those kind of, uh, you know, that kind of culture that Miscavige was steeped in that as a CMO messenger and as a, as a person coming up uh, during that time when Hubbard was still, you know, around. So that's where the, you know, so the swearing still comes from the top down. So that is a factor as well. If it was discouraged or if Miscavige, you know, came down with some rule someday that, hey, no more, that's it. Sea Org members, I don't care what circumstances, you know, and knock it off. Then they would stop, you know, or at least they would try to curb their enthusiasm but uh, for swearing. But that's, that's, you know, it is from the top for sure. So there is that factor as well. And there you go. Haley Smith, having watched a recent critical Q&A, I was struck that you openly called out Jackie Lacey. Not because it wasn't well-deserved, but because you weren't afraid to pull any punches. Having watched all of your catalog, I know that you have no time for sexism, but it got me wondering if your history in Scientology had an impact on your open-mindedness on equality. While I loathe most of what I learn about Scientology, something that has been interesting is that the progress has very little to do with life experience or gender. I'm just curious if you think critical thinking played more of a role, your lovely bride, or that you were exposed to the fact that people are potentially carrying a history of past lives in which they could have been anything slash everything. I guess I'm asking if you think that one of the few good nuggets of Scientology is that people are not defined by their earthly bodies, but by their character, i.e. Phaeton. Or if that became more apparent to you later after discovering critical thinking. Was there a fair amount of sexism in Scientology? Okay, thanks Haley for this question. This is interesting. I've mentioned before, and my experience of sexism in Scientology was almost non-existent to the degree that women were in charge more often than men, women were in command positions and giving orders certainly out of the CMO and RTC all the damn time, right? There were way more women in RTC and way more women in CMO than there were men. And those were the organizations that were really the command structure of Scientology, right? They were the ones who implement David Miscavige's desires, wishes, and orders. And make of that what you will. Obviously, Miscavige has a, a thing for promoting women over men. Probably a male dominance thing on his part, I have no doubt, right? Um, but I don't, you know, I don't know if sexism is part of his game or not, but I, am, I, am, I kind of imagine it is, given the disparity between men and women at the level of RTC and the level of command personnel in Scientology, generally speaking. Um, it's just an interesting thing that I've noted, and um, and it's anyway, yeah. So that so I don't think that um, women are discriminated against in favor, you know, in making them uh, not have those roles in Scientology. Okay, and and we never really thought much about men or women when it came to personnel. I did a lot of work with personnel in Scientology in the Sea Org moving people around, transferring people to different posts, um, needing people to go do training, needing people for executive positions. 
And their gender was frankly just never ever part of the consideration of why we would put somebody on a, a job. Just never even thought about it. So that's why for me, my experience of it, even at the level of the Sea Org where things suck really bad for all kinds of reasons, sexism wasn't really one of those reasons for me. Now, I am not going to say, though, that it doesn't exist or that nobody in the Sea Org ever experiences sexism because I'm quite sure that there are people who come into the Sea Org with very sexist attitudes and they carry those attitudes on into the Sea Org because there isn't anything particularly telling you not to either. Uh, Hubbard doesn't anywhere say anything about, you know, you know be, uh, don't be sexist. <laughs> he doesn't say those words anywhere. So, um, so anyway, I, you know, I, I think if it got in the way, if it got weird, if, so, if somebody started acting weird or abusive or something like that within the world of the Sea Org, the Sea Org attitude is pretty much, uh, it's not a timid place. It's not a place for timid people. So women who come into the Sea Org generally, you know, rise to the, the situation where they're not going to really particularly take a lot of shit from guys either. Right? I mean, the equality is kind of, it, it is kind of there. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Now, as far as my own upbringing or Scientology background, you know, speaking to my current beliefs and ideas about this, I think it's probably a feature, not a bug, that I was raised with the idea that we are all the same in terms of being spiritual entities rather than being defined by our bodies. Because if you remove the body component out of it and you just look at a living human being and you look at everybody as a living human being, okay, all human beings should have right to life, right to movement, right to thought, expression, right, etc. Like these basic human rights. We should all have them. I mean, this is also pushed within Scientology. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is not just given lip service. Sea Org members, Scientologists, really believe in human rights. The problem, of course, is they can't think critically about Scientology and how it denies people human rights within its own walls. That's what they can't think critically about. But the idea of human rights and the idea of world peace based on everybody having a level playing field they can all operate from, called human rights, that's not a bug in the world of Scientology any more than it's a bug in the big wide world. It's a feature. It's a good thing. We should want everybody to get on board with human rights. And that's, and I did get on board with human rights while I was a Scientologist, and I carried that over. So when I came out into the big wide world and I looked around at what was going on, I went, well, this is a lot of bullshit because this is denial of human rights, right? And, um, and that's not cool, and that's never been cool with me. So I, so I think my upbringing probably did have a lot to do with that. I didn't grow up thinking that there were some people who are more equal than others. You know, I didn't really come up thinking that way, and I never really bought into that whole idea the elites and all of that. I bought into it, of course, with the Sea Org, though, of course. Actually, I can't, I, I got to rein myself in a little bit here, you know. I certainly had my prejudices. Um, but in the bigger picture of things, okay, yeah, sure, I had this idea that the Sea Org and Scientology were above everybody else, but not at the level of their rights. Even now, I have to stress this. 
You know, I never imagined that just because I was a Scientologist or a Sea Org member that I had more rights than other human beings. I only imagined that I had more knowledge and more ability or more natural, you know, not natural, but more spiritual awareness because of the fact that I was doing Scientology. But, it would, but that didn't include I had more rights than other people. So even then, yeah, even then. Uh, so that's kind of how I've always looked at it, always, my whole life. And, um, and I think that's how I'm going to keep looking at it. And I think that's where that comes from. So anyway, interesting question. Thanks for asking me about that. Jennifer, is Scientology really striving to become the only government in the world? If so, it is no wonder the German government is so hostile towards them. If there's one thing you can't do here, I live in Germany, it is going against the Constitution. Yes, Scientologists definitely want a government that they run, that they're in charge of, that uses Scientology, organizational procedures, guidelines, all the rules that Hubbard laid out for how organizations should work, and they truly think that government is this, you know, monolithic, more, you know, massive nonsense and bureaucracy and craziness and and that we could sort it all out so quickly if they would just put us in charge, right? I mean, this is, it's almost Trumpian in its simplicity, uh, it, you know, kind of like the, with the uh, with the healthcare thing. When Trump got into office and he was like, oh, healthcare, who knew it was so complicated, you know? And we were all like, uh, everybody knew, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like that with, with Scientologists' view of government. They, And this comes right from L. Ron Hubbard. This is why I thought this might be worthy of commenting on. L. Ron Hubbard tended to make very broad, sweeping generalizations about government, about religion, organized religion, uh, about history, philosophy, science especially. And it just in one or two sentences, he would just completely dismiss whole disciplines of knowledge. Just, ah, biology, ah, all they're doing is classifying things. They don't know anything. You know, medicine, ah, they know how to break, you know, they know how to fix bones. They know how to sew up a cut, but they don't know anything else, right? He would just, uh, just, just lay waste to whole areas of study with, with a sentence or two. And he was no different about government. He thought all the governments are crazy. Um, and in fact, Hubbard actually said the ideal government is a beneficent monarchy. And the problem, of course, is that, you know, the matter of secession, how do you, how do you make sure that the next monarch is going to be a benign monarch, right? And this is the problem with this. Well, I think he thought that was the best form of government so long as he was the benign monarch. And he wasn't so benign, was he? So, you know, interesting choice for him, of course, because he can't just flat out say, well, I prefer dictatorships. <laughs> um, but this was an argument he made a couple times, and he said it was based on conversations and stuff that he'd had with others. But regardless of any of that, Hubbard made it very, very, very clear in his later writings, this was all 1950s stuff, later in the 60s and 70s when he's developing the Sea Org and this worldwide international network and a spy network to go along with it, which was being run by his wife. Once all that was developed, then none of the governments could possibly be anything but enemies of Scientology, directly opposed to what Scientology is doing, and utilizing psychiatry to enforce their aims on anybody, to enforce their will on anyone. 
So Hubbard had the idea and he would say, you know, out loud and in writing that psychiatry was used to just go pluck people off the street and throw them in a mental institution, no more problem. And this was what government dissenters, political extremists, you know, this kind of stuff would be, would be picked up and, and taken away. So, um, I shouldn't say extremist protesters, I meant, right? So, um, and that they should eventually, Scientology should eventually be the one in charge of the whole mess. And, um, and that was, there's really not a lot of question about the fact that that was Hubbard's intent. So the German government is absolutely spot on in noticing that in the dogmatic materials of Scientology and saying, hey, what's up with this? This is awful anti-government. Yeah, it is. Because Hubbard was anti-church, anti-government in a big, huge, monstrous way. And he was sure that his way was the better way. And of course, we know from the structure and success of Scientology organizations that they are a madhouse mess and that Hubbard's ideas of organizational sanity or structure are crazy and they don't work, you know? And you have to alter them and modify them and change them enormously in order to get them to work. And so Hubbard's visions of a, of a Scientology government would end up looking like North Korea, as we've, as we've said before. So anyway, that's um, kind of where Scientology's coming from on that. And uh, there you go. R. R. Smith, if I went into an org just to drop off, say, some bags of cookies or chips or care bags of snacks for no reason, how would they react? I really don't know why I feel the need to give comfort to strangers, but I really do want to. Their lives are so miserable. I do give to the Aftermath Foundation, but I want to do something kind for the people still in. How do you feel about this? Well, it's certainly a wonderful effort on your part, and, a, and a, I don't doubt your sincerity at all. I think that's great that you want to help the people who are still in Scientology, or especially, I guess, in the Sea Org, but uh, they don't really want your help. They don't really, they're going to reject it. You know, if you go in there with stuff, they're going to be like, who are you? What do you want? What, why? Go away. You know, they're just going to show you the door. Um, they might probably try to turn you into a Scientologist, actually, is what they're really going to try to do. It's like, what? what, are you, what are you, where'd you get the idea we need this? No, everybody's fine. Everybody comes trotting out, smiles on their faces. Hey, we're great. We love it here. Everything's wonderful. Right? And, you know, they try to make you look like an idiot. Um, you know, on a Sea Org base, it's going to be ten times worse. Security will just come by and go, yeah, we, please leave. You know, you're just going to be uh, escorted off the base. Um, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of pride there, there's a, and it's an unfounded pride, but it's still pride just the same. Um, and also the Sea Org especially very, very much has, the added, has a very insular attitude and a, and a basic distrust of people who are not in the Sea Org actually in a, in a certain way, especially people who are not Scientologists, very much so. So no one's going to look at what you're trying to do as, as honest help or sincere, or coming from a good place, they're going to think you're nuts. They're going to think you've been misinformed, that you are uh, ignorant of what's, not, what's really going on in Scientology, and, um, and they're just not going to want your help. You know, and that's kind of where they're going to, where they're going to come from on that. That's, uh, it, it's an interesting question, because no one's ever, ever posited it to me before. It's a, it's a good one, but um, 
But like I said, I think your efforts to help people inside are best met by giving to the Aftermath Foundation or to other charities or the International Cultic Studies Association, if you want to broaden out really wide. Um, you know, I think there's other places it can go that might be way more effective use of that money to fight the fight that we are fighting right now. So there you go. Well, it looks like it's time for some more flash answers. Paul Clark, what do you do to relax? Your wife must be incredibly supportive, so make sure you keep hold of her. Thanks, Paul. My wife is the bomb.com, and I will definitely be doing everything I can to keep hold of her. As far as relaxing goes, I read, I mostly watch TV or movies, chill, listen to music. Um, I have only in the last year or so, I think less than that even, but I started putting some kind of a schedule in in my life where I actually kind of try to do my work during the day and then have my evenings and weekends somewhat freed up a little bit um, or more so than they used to be. So, um, so that's going better, you know, as far as getting that kind of discipline in. But, um, but mostly just that. I also, um, you know, do Lego model work. I kind of like doing that. And designing stuff and things like that. And writing, of course. So that's, that's kind of what I do. Leo Perez. What do you plan to do after you die? This is actually a question my nine-year-old son asked me. What happens when we die? <laughs> Thanks, Leo. Um, you know, my favorite answer to this question, uh, what happens when we die, is from Louis C.K. And if you haven't heard it, the answer is, lots of things happen when we die. We're just not there to watch them happen. <laughs> we ain't there, right? We're not part of that picture anymore. So um, I think that's what happens when we die. I don't have any, any uh, I, I haven't made any reservations uh, at Shanahan's or anything for after I die, so. Gern Blanston. I was wondering, right now you have over 31,000 subscribers. Do you think you have more subscribers than Scientology has members? Actually, I do. <laughs> Which is crazy! <laughs> Never imagined when I started this that I would grow this channel this far. Uh, or have plans to keep it going, but I do. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thanks a lot for coming around and listening to me blabber on here. I hope you found it informative, educational, and entertaining. Please leave any questions for me, or rather, I should say, send me any questions you have uh, to uh, askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And, of course, if you're liking my channel and you enjoy what I do and you think that maybe this should continue for a little while, then consider joining me on Patreon because that is what keeps the lights on and the show going. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.